the Jobs Summit, wages, unequal payday and tax cuts. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your co-host, Ben Davison, and joining me here at home... At home! ...is my wife, the best-selling author of QAnon and on a short and shocking history of internet conspiracy cults, the wonderful Van Batam. How are you, Van? Well, I'm pretty good because I'm with you and I have this extremely cute dog on my lap. That's right. Germanicus seems to be sleeping peacefully, so hopefully that will continue throughout the episode. Uh, if you do hear him in the background, well, long-time listeners, you've come to grow and love that noise. <laughs> so, look, it's a, it's a huge, huge episode today. Today, oh, it's going to be. We're going to be meaty. Oh, we're going to be meaty today. It is. It is all of our interests in one episode. I reckon it is a nerdapalooza for those of you listening along at home or walking or doing. However you listen, wherever you listen, in Australia or around the world, uh, it's a meaty one because. And a big shout out to our listeners in Germany, who are apparently our fifth largest market for this podcast, which is awesome. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Particularly around Berlin and in the. Valley area. So all of our comrades in the River Valley, big hello to all of you. Yeah, that's right. That's pretty cool. Yep. Um, Having spent some time there, I think I can maybe <laughs> work out why we're popular, but you and I don't need to have that conversation right now. Anyway, look, today is, uh, of course, Wednesday, the 31st of August, the day before the Jobs and Skills Summit starts. It it starts tomorrow. There's 142 people. The list has gone from 100 to 140 to 142. The AFR has published the full list of attendees. There are 52 people from business and industry, 33 workers' representatives from unions, 14 people from government, 29 community representatives, and 14 from academia and think tanks. Many of the people going, we know, in across all the categories, actually, I think we've known people, uh, which is, I think, great. The AFR, this is the Australian Financial Review, the, the boss's pamphlet, if you like, is saying that business the is- boss's pamphlet. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad I married you. Yes, continue. Well, it is the boss's it pamphlet. It is the boss's pamphlet. And, like, quite frankly, I get a bit jack of how much influence people give the AFR and the Australian. Most people don't read those papers, but what happens is- People like us, quite frankly, and others, use them then to talk about the news of the day. Now, we're going to talk about what's in the AFR, but we're also going to slam it for how inaccurate <laughs> and garbage it is, which is not what most people do. They just report it verbatim. Yes, it is not holy writ. No, it is not holy writ. It's like being intimidated by somebody who has an MBA. Like, don't be. I've got an MBA. Anyone can get an MBA. My friend Tom is about to finish his MBA. Hi, Tom, one of our closest personal friends. Hi. We love you, Tom. But but, you know, you and I both know if you're prepared to work hard enough, you can probably get an MBA if all the other structural advantages fall your way as well. Do the dance of white male privilege, Ben. It's all about the elbows. Don't move the hips or knees. Yeah, don't lift your feet from the floor. <laughs> uh, we've all seen the uncle dance at a wedding. But <laughs> the AFR is complaining the business is underrepresented. And the point I want to make here, AFR and Michael Stutchbury, editor of the AFR, and why you're wrong to say that, is that business investment in the economy is currently at its lowest level since 1992. That's over 30 years of record low business investment in the economy. Now, they make claims about, oh, workers aren't covered by unions and the rest of it. Awards still cover more workers than any other mechanism. Between awards and collective agreements and union representation, more workers are represented by unions than businesses investing in the economy. And let's be quite frank about this as well. All this discussion about productivity has to be the driver of wage increases. And all We've talked about this on the show before, Van, but this there was a piece by Pasco in the New Daily that spelled this out really clearly. There is labour productivity happening in the economy. It is outstripping wage growth. It is actually capital that is failing to be invested in the economy, and yet we have record profits. Yeah, so just in case you have been watching any, say, news discussion programs where the subject of productivity comes up and people think that declining productivity is something about being lazy at work, 
this is not true. This is a classic misinterpretation of information, which it fails to distinguish between labor productivity, that is the productivity of people who work and make things and how many things they can make or service in any given time, and capital productivity, which is how much money is invested into making things so we can make more things. Absolutely. And look, your colleague at The Guardian, Greg Jericho, did a series of graphs about this. I think Pasco used one of them in the new No, Valley. but he does a graph like Jeff, like Greg Jericho. Jeff, who is Jeff? No, just Greg Jericho is Mr. Graphs. Yeah. And look, they're good graphs because it really spells it out. We are living in a time of high labor productivity, low capital productivity, yet the benefits are going to to profits, which is how capital productivity gets extracted out of the economy, while wages are being cut. So, of course, there is an imbalance in the system. It is an imbalance in power and it has to be fixed there. If you're finding this language alienating, I'll do a too-long-didn't-read translation. Rich people are lazy and they become richer by taking more of your money. Yeah, that's essentially what's going on. So this Jobs and Skills Summit comes at an absolutely crucial time because the system is broken. It's not working. It's certainly not working in the way that ideologues would pretend that it works. Uh, We have record low unemployment, yet we have wage cuts. We have high labor productivity, yet we have wage cuts. Yeah, it's a solution to everything in the boss's pamphlet, isn't yeah. it? Like, oh, better cut wages. Oh, too much inflation. Better cut wages. Not enough inflation. Better cut wages. Productivity. Oh, there's too much of it. Better cut wages. Like, come on. So, look, one of it's the- It's almost like we are on to you. <laughs> and I think we are onto onto them. And look, it's not the case. It wouldn't be fair to say, Van, that- Every employer or employer group uh, is doing the wrong thing or wants to do the wrong thing or is committed to doing the wrong thing. No, because it was made very clear this week that there are, of course, employers and employer groups that represent employers who are very into doing the right thing. Absolutely. And the union movement has been standing alongside various employers and employer groups throughout the week to demonstrate that actually there are points of common interest. One of those points, which is a big point, is around multi-employer bargaining. I want everybody to get sexy with this term because you're going to hear a lot of it. Well, Ben, what is multi-employer bargaining? I don't know. I'm doing stupid voices today. (laughs) I'm in a good mood. That's good. I'm home. I've got a dog on my lap. Well, look, multi-employer bargaining is essentially the ability to, for workers and employers across multiple enterprises to come together and agree on set terms and conditions for all of the workers and all of the enterprises covered by that agreement. Give me a theoretical example. Well, I can give you some real practical examples. This is why I married you. So one of the practical examples, and I'll go into the detail of this a little bit later on, but in childcare or early childhood education, where you have very small uh, workplaces, sometimes as few as one staff member, but generally between one and four staff members. It's very hard for those staff that, in a centre that is run by volunteers in terms of the committee to negotiate a collective agreement. There's not enough time. There's not enough resources. The, the people, the bosses in inverted commas are parents and are usually only the boss for one or two years anyway. So collective agreements that get done. Now, in a multi-employer agreement, you might have a whole series of early childhood education centres that might be in a geographical area. They might service a particular uh, group or a state even. They might be part of the same uh, you know, branded chain, but all individual enterprises. It could be any combination of those things. And you would have one agreement that covers all of them. Which could be negotiated collectively by workers through their union across all of their workplaces. And you could have an employer representative to represent all of them. So we don't have a bazillion agreements of people who don't know what they're doing. And also, as a person who typically works in small workplaces, don't have the weird personal dynamics that often come into these employer-employee discussions when it comes to wages and conditions and workplace organising. 
I understand particularly from my own experiences how weird it is to try and negotiate like a collective agreement with a boss who in many ways you see as your equal because of the way that your workplace functions. And there's a natural reluctance to enter into any kind of discussion that might be perceived to be combative. Absolutely. And this is one of the reasons why COSBOA, which is, and I'm probably going to get this wrong, but essentially it's the peak body for small business. And they represent over a million small businesses. This is the COSBOA group. And their CEO, Alexi Boyd, stood alongside Sally McManus, the leader of the Australian Trade Union movement. Absolutely the person you want to have standing by your side. I'll and, just say that. And, of course, Sally represents around 2 million union members, uh, quite aside from the, the broader uh, working class as well. And they've come up with four areas of agreement that small business and the trade union movement want to move forward on. It's the ability for small business to be able to correctly embrace workplace relations requirements because we know if you're starting a small business, it can be confusing, right? And you don't have a HR department. So you're trying to do it all yourself. Sometimes things go wrong. Nobody wants to punish people who are trying to do the right thing, but we've got to have a system that encourages them to come forward when they haven't done the right thing and rectify that as quickly as, as possible. They want a simpler, better off overall test. This has been a long-term discussion in the Australian industrial relations landscape because, of course, for over a decade, we've had the same test in place. And over the course of time, various legal decisions have changed what the better off overall test actually means. Now, it literally means that every single worker has to be 100% better off in cash terms than they would be otherwise. People make the point, and it's fair, I think, that there are some people who would like to be better off in other ways. They would like additional flexibility in their roster. They would like- Shorter shifts. Shorter shifts. Work to start later or earlier. Of course. So a better off overall test that's a bit simpler and thinks about workers as groups of workers rather than having to go through, say, every single person's roster. New options for flexibility in the workplace. That's that thing around shifts and how do we manage that and how do we uh, make sure that, and we talked about this when we talked about the impact of poor rostering and shifts in our special episode mm. a few months ago, right? And of course, the fourth one, which is around collective bargaining that includes multi-employer agreements. Because you can imagine that if, you know, the cafe, the cafe in our main street is not going to be in a position to negotiate a collective agreement, but they might sign up to a collective agreement for all the cafes in the district. That might be something where they go, actually, yeah, if we don't have to compete on wages and we can focus on having the best coffee and delivering the best service and making our food the tastiest, that's a much better use of our time than trying to constantly go, oh, how do we avoid paying shift uh, overtime here? And how do we avoid paying penalty rates there? And oh, maybe we shouldn't hire somebody uh, who's on full rates. Maybe we should hire someone on junior rates. So if we take all of that out of it, actually people can focus on their business. Oh, amazing. How amazing to think that a system has been proposed that would actually let people focus on their core business as opposed to, you know, I, I mean, I'm thinking specifically about local businesses and the woman who makes the most amazing pies in the world, just so everybody knows <laughs> the most amazing pies in the world are made near us. And I'm not going to tell you where because they're my pies. They're pies <laughs> for me. They they belong to me and you can't have them. However, like it, it is ridiculous to think that there would be a distraction from pie making around you know, having to negotiate clauses and wages and all of these agreements when it can be simplified through like an association of pie makers uh, mm. discussing things collectively for collective outcomes. I mean, the other thing about this as well is that it puts those structures back and defragments the system. 
And it puts structures back in place where we could have, can you imagine, in this country, a bit of tripartite economic planning? Because if we're encouraging employers to collectivise and workers to collectivise, that actually simplifies discussions that can be had at a macro level about what the economy should look like and what trend, how trends in the economy can be managed for better, for better outcomes for everybody, for better outcomes for business as well as better outcomes for workers and better outcomes, hey, stop me if I sound like a communist, for the community. Well, this is the this is the point, right? And I'd encourage everybody to go and join your union. You, you can, should join your union. You can go online right now, australianunions.org.au slash wow. That's W-O-W. Because the week on Wednesday, we have our own link. I know, it's so good. And and because the the union movement throughout this whole process for the last few weeks has been reaching out the hand of friendship, reaching out the olive branch, prepared to have discussions. You know, in the weekend wrap, I discussed uh, Sally McManus and uh, Jennifer Westercott from the BCA. Being That's on, the Business Council of Australia. Being on Insiders and all the things they agreed on. Yeah, there are points of difference. There are always going to be points of difference. They fundamentally have some things where they disagree. But also, Australia is a sovereign nation where all parts of it can work in conversation to make Australia Better. Amazing. And I've got to say, the feedback- Australia. From- I don't know if I've been watching a lot of BBC documentaries. But the feedback from listeners, Van, has been amazing. People are so happy to be in this position where nationally now we can have these conversations and bring people to the table. It's so interesting to hear- people who are typically Liberal voters and perhaps even voted Liberal at the last election saying to me, and you only say mm. it to me if you want me to say it to other people, that they thought it was about time we had a Labor government because there were problems that needed to be redressed. And it's so true. Like, you know, there's so many people coming out and saying these are problems that have to be fixed. You've had ACOS, which is the Australian Council of Social Services, the BCA that I already mentioned. Today, the HVAC industry, which for those of you who don't know, is heating, ventilation and air conditioning, has come out and said multi-employer bargaining will stop a race to the bottom in manufacturing in that sector. That's fantastic news. You know, these are the first- Solidarity HVAC. I know. These are- these are employer groups who operate in manufacturing who want to focus on being the best manufacturer they can be, not in lowering wages as far as humanly possible. The First Nations Employment Alliance had a meeting this week, and one of the things they called for was the ability, and I quote, to make agreements that cover multiple organisations and that suit our needs. When you put it like that, when you think about multi-employer bargaining like that, that actually makes total sense. It's very hard to argue against the idea that people should be able to make agreements that cover multiple organisations and that suit our needs. Well, that just seems like common sense, right? Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of common sense in this space, though. There's been some really targeted and, dare I say, niche pursuits of greed. Well, there have been because there's no question that multi-employer bargaining will lift wages. It's fundamentally what happens. We've seen it happen in other countries. It it lifts wages, particularly for the lowest paid workers, because suddenly instead of being one or two or three people trying to negotiate with somebody who's not even going to be the boss for very long, you've got 20,000 childcare workers who are all negotiating at the same time. So you've had the Michaelia Cashes and the Peter Duttons Describe this as a throwback. Describe this as uh, a way of of shutting down the economy uh, with economy wide strikes. These are, of course, the people who told us that electric vehicles would end the weekend. Like, I'm not entirely convinced that their analysis of future threat is particularly accurate. I don't think if I was going for a bit of soothsaying, and as you know, as a columnist, one of my big occupational risks is I don't like to indulge in soothsaying. I don't like to predict or prognosticate. And certainly if I can recognise that in myself, really wish Peter Dutton and Michaela Cash would recognise it in themselves. Like we have heard some nonsense from the Liberal Party recently. I'm just wondering if they should maybe visit some of those teal seats to find out what Liberal values really are. Well, it is interesting because they have tried to make this a debate from the 1970s 
by, you know, Peter Dutton accused something Manus of being from the 1970s. And look. I mean, know, she does have a mullet, Ben. I mean, but, there is that. Well, as she said on my Twitter feed, on the week on Wednesday Twitter feed, a 1980s mullet. Um, <laughs> and, and quite frankly, you know, 1,200 people have liked the tweet on the week on Wednesday page where I, we, we tweeted out that uh, Peter Dutton has accused Selling Manus of being a throwback to the 1970s. The very ne- on the same day where Sally McManus is standing next to the Small Business Council with their one million members, jointly calling for for multi employer bargaining. Yeah. See, when Peter Dutton talks about the seventies, he's talking about the eighteen seventies. You know, when <laughs> we lived in an era of like bizarre protectionist policy, as well as clampdowns on unions. You know, the very brutal industrial conditions that led to. Oh, what happened? Oh, yes, the formation of the Australian Labor Party, the very first workers' political party in the world to ever achieve government. And and this is really So if you want to repeat that, Pete, go ahead. And this is really what it boils down to, right? Dutton has refused to go to the summit. He's gone on ABC. uh, Have a big sook. And had a big sook about it. Uh, said that it, it's basically just a union love fest. And yeah, all those small businesses. What a union love fest! And this is the this is the thing, right? There One are, million small business people, union love fest. There are really, uh, there's really only one major employer group, possibly two, that are not looking to actively engage with. Here it comes. And that is the Australian <laughs> Industry Group. That be Innes Willicks? That's Innes Willicks. That's Innes Willicks. Innes Willicks. Now look, Innes Willicks. That's a person, by the way. Yeah, that's a that's a real person. You can look that up. Innes Willicks. That's a name. He, he has genuinely attempted to derail this process. He's, he's invited. He's going to the summit. He said he's going. They but, all feel so unrepresented, even though they're the majority of delegates. That's right. They're the majority of delegates, and he's going, but. He says that the calls for multi-employer bargaining are an issue of deep concern and and he just can't understand it, right? So this is the guy who represents some of the biggest companies in Australia. Mining companies? Some of them are mining companies, defence companies. Fossil fuel companies? Uh, I think there's a few in there. Um, I mean, I'm just establishing we're talking real paragons of virtue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he talks about... And this is his quotes. These are his quotes, again, from the boss's pamphlet. This arrangement has now opened the way to over 2 million small businesses to be unionised and open to industrial action, no matter what their role or involvement in a dispute. Oh, no. People joining unions? Whatever will happen next? Industrial fairness? This is a... He goes on. An equalisation of power dynamics in the workplace? He goes on. This is a sector that... Mildred, find me some money. I need to buy more pearls to clutch. But he goes on, Van. This is a sector that has avoided the worst of union domination. And there is enormous concern among small business representatives at what this deal could mean to their businesses and competitiveness. But he doesn't represent small businesses. He represents the big businesses, which small businesses... (laughs) will tell you, uh, usually the single largest like threat and competition to their continued existence. Am I wrong? Did I miss something at capitalist school? No, no, you got it entirely right. And here's a classic example. Oh, I hate classic examples. They just make me angry. Let's take petrol stations. Oh, God. And I'm using petrol stations because the head of, I don't know if he's the head of, but one of the spokespeople for the mining industry tweeted recently about a local independent fuel station that has gone out of business in his area. And it's very sad to see. And he's blamed Dan Andrews for this because, of course, he has, he votes Liberal. (laughs) You know, I let the milk go rotten in the fridge once and it was definitely Dan Andrews's fault. I saw him come in and put a curse on it. Um, But the point is that it's very easy to Google number of petrol stations and how many have closed? Because if you do that, you'll see that in 1975, there was over 25,000 petrol stations in Australia. And in 2019, that number had dropped to around 6,500. Why? What happened? Was it suddenly that independent petrol stations just went, I don't want to do this anymore? Daniel Andrews stealing petrol stations in the middle of the night like a thief. No. Big business came in and it consolidated the market. Australia has a long history of market consolidation. People like Ennis Willocks represent 
major corporate consolidators. They come into a marketplace, they gobble up independence, they and they create effectively your kind of like BP, your Shell Coles arrangement, your Caltex uh, Woolworths arrangements that were in place for a while, and they force out small business. That's actually what they do. So it's really interesting to see because the other thing is it's the the Business Council of Australia, which is another big business representative body, it's actually taken a much more moderate line and gone, yeah, actually we do need wages to go up. If wages don't go up, people can't afford to buy our stuff. That's a problem. That's going to cause us an issue. But there's some weird logic that goes on like in this phase of late capitalism where people seem to think that things will still be sold and markets will continue to grow even though people have less and less money. Like it's like your whole moral is based on the cancerous ideology of growth for the sake of growth and I am quoting Edward Abbey if people know who he is and yet you're not feeding that and you're not feeding those cells any sugar. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, absolutely. Like you're absolutely right. And you know, it becomes it becomes not just political but ideological, right? And the in that weird, inarticulate capitalist ideological way. Oh well, the 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 CEO of the WA Chamber of Commerce has accused Cosboa of betrayal, like the, accused the Small Business Council of betrayal. Do you know what betrayal looks like? Thousands of people attacking a Capitol building trying to overturn a democratic election. That's literally the modern frame for betrayal, guys. You would think so, right? Look, there's a lot of things that are going to happen at the summit. Lots of things are going to be discussed. Lots of these ideas are really important. I want to flag a couple of other quick ones because I've also spoken to some workers and I think it's important we tell their story as well today because they, they were really powerful stories. But there's two, two quick issues that are going to come up. The Retailers Association has called for child labour to be reinstated. Yeah, by the way, that's bad. That's really bad. They have been told me this this morning and I made just sort of choky noises and I've calmed down now, but I'm still pretty enraged. They would like the working age in this country to be 13. 13. I wouldn't trust, a th- like, I just, I can't even, anyway, I mean, the occupational health and safety risks of that alone, but also the uh, historical experience of exploitation factor, like, is just off chops. And it's like, did they miss the, did they miss the children driving forklifts thing? This is not, child labour is not a popular community value around these parts, love. No. That's not a thing where like, do you know what we need? More child labour. Do you know what the problem with this country is? Not enough kids going down pit. You know what I mean? And I think it also speaks to the lack of understanding about the new dynamic. Right? Or the reality of what constitutes a child. Well, yeah. And, and like, if I just for a moment put aside the, <laughs> the dog is licking me because he thinks I am wounded and crying <laughs> if I put aside for a moment the the actual concept the idea which is inherently bad but go how have they done this well they have come out with a media release and tried to do media on it as their good idea for the summer <laughs> right? which you know look fair play if you're gonna go big you might as well go all the way but they haven't engaged right so There's Sally McManus standing up with the head of COSBOA. There's Michelle O'Neill, president of the ACTU, standing up with the BCA. Sally and the head of the BCA going on insiders together. Engagement, consultation. A conversation. conversation. About mutually agreed outcomes for the betterment of the country that we live in. The Retailers Association did not consult with with the SDA. The SDA has come out and said- This is insane. This is terrible and that retailers would be better off working with their current staff- (laughs) To provide them the hours that the staff want and that the retailers need, which goes back to that earlier conversation and the conversation we had some episodes ago about proper rostering and consulting with the staff. You know, oh no, we'll just get some thirteen-year-olds, Ben. Look, that won't be a problem at all, and it is not remotely a problem. And look, there are question marks about skill shortages and labour shortages, and I get that. But there are lots of people who want to go back into the workforce. Up to four hundred thousand older Australians want to go back into the workforce yeah, in some way, shape, or form. They really would. I mean, this is an ongoing issue, and it's an issue to do with underemployment in this country. Absolutely. Like we've known that even when employment figures have improved, underemployment figures have. St- 
still been incredibly bad. So you have a whole pool of workers who are looking for the opportunity to have more hours, to earn more money, to piece together something that looks like a stable income. And the solution of the Retailers Association is basically children driving forklifts. We are back there. What is wrong with people? You know, there was a quote that's been getting a lot of play on Twitter in the past couple of days where somebody who should know better described, oh, Annie Albanese is speaking to the people who is not speaking to smart people, the, the smart end of the street. He's speaking to the people who clean the street. And I'm like, guys, if you think the people who are smart and the people who claim the street are two distinct and separate groups, we have a problem. Because let me tell you, I know a lot of very smart people who've worked in street cleaning. And I also know a lot of complete and utter fools who represent um, organisations, business and industry. And I think if we're looking at that particular paradigm, the let's get 13-year-olds to do it, <laughs> Really? I mean, that backs up what I'm saying. Oh, absolutely. And, look, there are- there oh, I'm are, having an aneurysm? Like, this is just so- But there are, there's also, there are 200,000 Australians with disabilities who want to do more work as well. You know, so this is one of the great things. In the lead-up to the summit, unlike the Retailers Association, who just seemed to have issued a media release on whatever idea they had lying around um, and recycled from the forklift, uh, These are people spending too much time in the photocopier room. Can I just yeah. say? There, there's actually it's the been, fumes. There's been it's the fumes. There's been summits and meetings and discussions <sighs> with Australians with disabilities, with older Australians. You know, bringing together employers, bringing together workers, like all sorts of things going on in the lead up to this. And the people who are participating in these processes are actually coming to some form of shared ideas one of which is around migration, right? We've talked a little bit about this before on the show, but I just want to quickly say where this is up to as I understand it, right? The Business Council has now said they want to open up all $90,000-a-year-plus jobs to temporary skilled migrants without any kind of labour market testing, which, of course, is, I think, quite ridiculous. ACTU has said the minimum salary for migrant workers should be lifted from 53000 to 90000 To stop exploitation. We know that at the moment the 53000 isn't even being met because of the exploitation and people, employers, bad employers lie on the forms. Not every employer, but bad employers do. This is why the Australian Workers' Union has suggested that migrant workers should be given an opt-out union membership so they have protection when they arrive. Yep, which I totally agree with. Aki, which is the Chamber of Commerce and Industry, which the WACO was the one who basically called the other small business people betrayers. It's, it's all very high school, that kind Traitors. of stuff. Traitors. I know, right? But they, they think that that would kill migration migration program but has put forward the idea that the minimum should be lifted from 53 to 60. They don't really seem to have a justification for that other than we'll put it up to 60, which is sort of a bit more than 53. I should say the 90,000 the ACT was suggesting is the average wage. That's They're suggesting that's what it should be. It kind of makes sense to me. If you're going to bring in skilled workers because you can't get workers here, surely you've offered the average wage to do that job. Yeah, I mean, it'd be really awful if, say, you're approaching employment in an economy on the basis of structuralised poverty in other countries that you then exploit in order to have a manipulable labour force whose wages you can artificially drive down. I mean, that'd be bad. Talking about bad people, Justin Hems. Oh, God. Oh, no. Oh, Justin, why do you do this to me? One of my top five Top five corporate, corporate villains. Yeah, corporate villains. The Ben Davison Guide to Australia's Corporate Village. Justin Hams, CEO of Wage Theft Empire, Maryvale, <laughs> has who has not been invited to the summit. Good call. <laughs> Good call, Prime Minister Albanese. I'm, I'm still not happy that Yeah, there's Joyce a party you haven't been invited to, buddy. Get used to it. Yeah, that's right. Justin Hams, of course, who's $144 million worth of wage theft uh, he took and used to buy more pubs. Thanks very much, mate. Uh, wants as many temporary migrant workers as possible, as quickly as possible, through the door to help staff his pubs. I've got to say, when a guy who has been found by the federal court to underpaid workers $144 million puts forward an idea about the workforce or wages, whatever he has said, you should put a red circle around it and then do the exact opposite because that man is just looking for his next pool of victims. He is a bloodsucker and 
he is the CEO of a wage theft empire. There's no question about that. I love you. Anyway, so look, there, there's some of the issues that are going to come up. The migration issue, skilled workforce, how we get more people into the workforce. And and I want to be really clear about what it means, right? Because, man, I had the, the real kind of privilege to talk to three workers who have been up in Canberra talking to politicians who, who are up there right now talking to politicians who are going to be, I think, observing at the summit about their experiences and what what they've seen and what and really their story. And it goes to why multi-employer bargaining is so important. You know, you, you asked me before what one of the examples is. Well, there's a woman by the name of Janine who is a degree qualified teacher. This is a person who went to university, got a degree, and decided to work in early childhood education, right, which is lower paid than a teacher. Early childhood educators get paid less than teachers in this country, universally. Oh, God. <clears throat> she, she has, for the last 30 years, only ever worked in places where either she's been the only staff member or there's been a maximum of four. She said to me, no one in the rooms, that's the rooms where the kids are, can take time to step away and do the work that bargaining requires. None of the parents know how to do bargaining. The, the whole system operates in a funded environment, so they don't really have control of pricing. And the parents and staff all live in the same communities. It's that point you made before, right? Yeah, but personal dynamics do affect these outcomes. It's why third party is always better in these negotiations. She said that, Wages just don't go up because agreements just never get done. People are on the committee for one or two years. It can take that long to get an agreement, and by then people move on. It's they nobody wants to take industrial action of any kind because it's like kids. They're working with kids. They're working with parents. It's their community, mm-hmm. and the parents get angry if the kids aren't you know in care because they've structured their jobs and their incomes around childcare. Like it's really hard and people should be liberated from the burden and it is a burden of doing these negotiations when they should be collective. It's in everybody's interest. Absolutely. So the fir- for the first time ever that in Janine's memory, they're actually going to have a walk-off and it's on schedule for September 7th. They gave two months notice Nationwide, in July, they started telling parents and the workers were going to walk off the job for a day. For one day, they're going to walk off the job because they're so low paid, right? It's one of the lowest paid industries in the country. Janine, who has- Oh, by the way, everyone, early childhood education is 97% female, but I reckon you probably worked that out. Absolutely. And Janine, 30s experienced, degree qualified teacher, works multiple jobs. Sometimes she works multiple- um, early childhood jobs. Sometimes she's working in an early childhood center, plus she's working as a sports coach or tutoring or even in a cafe just to be able to pay her bills. Like this is not a sustainable way to run early childhood education. Now I said to her, like, what would you want to see out of this? And she said, I want the ability to have an agreement where my wages go up and I, and I want that to be reflective of what's going on in my sector. And it would mean that she could be part of an agreement that covers multiple sites that were like her site and that she could have a livable wage. Like that doesn't seem like a really big request, right? But that's what it means to someone like like Janine. I spoke to Chris. Now, Chris works in construction and most people would think of construction workers as really well paid, right? Like that's kind of what we hear a lot about and big construction sites and whatever. Now, Chris is in his 40s. He's been working for 23 years in construction. He's worked his entire life in construction and maintenance. And he's I, it opened my eyes because he says there's a race to the bottom on sites. So what happens is, He'll work for a contractor that'll be on site. There'll be multiple different contractors on a site and the head contractor, the big boss, will then go to the contractors and offer more work but pits them against each other to compete on the lowest possible price. We get that. It reminds you of the old days on the docks with the foreman. Yeah. You know, where the foreman would pick you out to to get work based on – 
how low you were willing to drop your price. And this is one of the stories that- I'm using that gendered language because I'm I'm harking back to an anecdote that Ben and I actually heard Bob Hawke tell yeah. about how what industrial relations used to be like in this country before, you know, unions organised and created collective agreements and bargained hard and fought for better for everyone. Well, let me tell you, the old days are back on some sites because Chris told me the story that- there was a point where there were three contractors on a site. They were all told they could bid for the additional work. The first contractor told the staff they'd have to take a 10% pay cut, but they'd get the extra work because they were pretty sure they'd win the, the, uh, win the job. The workers refused. They were all made redundant. The second company told their workforce they'd have to take a 10% pay cut and lose their RDO. The workers considered it. While they were considering it, the third company, the one that Chris worked for, told the workers they'd have to take a 25% pay cut. They refused. They took industrial action. 25 days they took industrial action, right, including there was a Christmas shutdown period. They got back from Christmas and they were all made redundant. The workers of the second company accepted the 10% pay cut and the loss of the RDO. They won the contract. Now, Chris tells me that he was, quote, unquote, lucky to be offered a job with that second company because they needed extra staff to do the work, but he had to take the 10% pay cut. Wow. I wonder why there's a labour shortage in this country. Do you think it's because there are employers who are treating workers like garbage and actually it reaches a point where there is no point in working for them? I reckon it might be because it- I mean, I'm just spitballing here. Well, look, Chris makes the point that- if companies couldn't pit other companies against each other on the basis of wages, then they'd actually have to work on improving the quality on the site. They'd have to be more efficient and more productive on site. Tony Sheldon spoke at a conference today. This is Senator Tony Sheldon from New South Wales. Shout out to Tony. Well, he spoke at a conference today about how Qantas uses this exact same model within the Qantas business. 20 different companies employing people who all work for Qantas. They're all doing Qantas work. But they're subcontracted. And they're contracted and subcontracted and subcontracted again. It's a shell game, isn't it? That's really what it is. And every time the contracts are renewed, the wages are cut. Because here's the kicker. And I think you've met Paul. Paul was the third third worker I got to talk to because Paul has worked for 20 years as an electrician at CUB. I met the workers at CUB. They were some of the best people I've ever met in my life and I was really proud to support their industrial action when they took it in the Battle of the Brewery a few years ago when long-term staff of the CUB brewery, highly skilled staff, um, were told they could accept um, a new contract with a massive pay cut or not have jobs anymore. That was a 65% pay cut. It was unbelievable. It was absolutely outrageous. And they took industrial action. They picketed. They set up tents. They had bands. They had like a 20-foot inflatable rat. They had a billiard table. And I went down there to cover what they were doing, and they were extraordinary. They were just – and they were making the point. They were fighting for their kids as well because if this could happen to them, it would be worse for their children in the workforce. Well, Paul makes the point that – he has spent, and I quote, I've spent my life at CUB, but he has worked for four different employers in the last decade. At CUB. At CUB. Subcontractor. Doing the same work. And every time they've chipped away a little bit at the wages. Now, that big cut of 65%, they beat that. They stood strong and they beat that. And there was a national campaign to make that happen. And he knows that, and he said to me, what really made the difference was the national campaign, the national boycott, and the fact that we stood strong and people stood with us to do that. But he also said that the reality is that every time every time the contract comes up, it gets given to a different company, and the companies that come in have agreements they've signed with different workforces in different parts of the country that don't even do the same things we do. And all of the things that we've negotiated, apprenticeships, minimum training rates, uh, leave loading, all these things get cut away and cut away and cut away. And one of the things that was really sad to hear him say, and this is, again, a quote, 
When I started, I used to go to a retirement party once a month. Now, no one gets to retirement because they are let go at 50 so they don't access as much leave, have higher pay rates, or the long service. Because every time the contract changes, the new subcontractor- They scrap hip older workers. They scrap the older workers. Yeah, but let's get children as young as 13 to do jobs because it's not like there's any spare capacity in the labour force. I just find this ageist and disgusting. Like, I find it ageist and disgusting. It is. And Paul, Paul makes- As well as, you know, inherently classist, but we all knew that. But Paul makes a similar point to Chris, right? Like, multi-employer bargaining would mean that there would be an industry standard and that companies would have to come in and compete on quality, on innovation, on actually having the best staff, not the cheapest staff. These are all, like, I can't see in any of these stories how these circumstances that exist now are better than the circumstances that would exist if we make the change. Well, I think we're looking at a managerial culture that's also fractured as well as lazy and being taught rubbish. I mean, quite honestly. Yeah. And you and I have seen it. I mean, we're union people. We stand on picket lines with our comrades across different industries, whether it's universities or breweries or early childhood education centres, any of those places. And we hear the same things. It's almost like an orthodoxy that the way to make money is to smash up your workforce, squeeze them for their wages, you know, in various cases, commit acts of wage theft that, you know, get proven true in federal court like these things keep happening and it's because i think there's a real separation between a managerial corporate managerial culture and the actual human beings who do the work and there's also a separation between those managers and the broader implications of the economy i mean forgive me for getting a bit old school about it one of the reasons why we used to teach oh liberal arts subjects to undergraduates across different degree programs at universities was so that people would get a comprehension of their role in a society that history and sociology and human geography and God help us, even English literature are part of a tapestry of engagement that helps us understand that people are human beings. I know. I mean, it's so out there and obviously how I was turned into a communist by my Marxist professors at university. But it's just this is a huge problem when you have a managerial class who physically cannot see the impact of the decisions they make and exist in a culture where they have no personal discretion to do anything else apart from repeat the cruelty. And look, somebody actually tweeted at our at us this morning how they had been involved in bargaining for the last seven months only to have the people who were negotiating on the management side of the table finally confess that they have no authority to adjust the pay rate, to change any of the claims that the employer has made, or to agree to any of the claims the employees are making. So that that managerialism and that lack of empowerment that exists, it, 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 it fundamentally undermines the very concept of bargaining. Decision makers are not in the room. Decision makers are not aware of what's going on. They're not eyeballing it. They're taking a 356 times multiplier to the average wage as their pay packet, but they're not actually sitting opposite the workers going, all right, well, we want to cut your wages by 65%, but we want to maintain the productivity of the line. How are we going to do that? They're not having that conversation. They're outsourcing it to some HR Consultants who are then outsourcing it to a subcontractor, who are then getting a dodgy agreement signed off in a different state, knowing and presenting that, it as a fait accompli. Yeah, and knowing that their contract will be more valuable the more money they squeeze and the more pressure, the financial pressure they put their workforce under. I mean, it's it's really it's a structuralized waste weight race to the bottom. And what's really frustrating about it is that, like, I am no capitalist. I don't know if listeners to this show have picked that up. It's not. My preferred system of social organization. But certainly there used to be an energy to capitalism and entrepreneurialism that was about productivity and output and competitive innovation and, and those kind of advantages. And they have fallen out of the corporate culture in this country. And I come back to the Michael Pasco piece. We Bi- love him, by the way. Business, Pasco, if you're listening, we love you. Business investment is at its lowest levels since 1992. They are taking the productivity of workers 
as record profits and it has to stop. Um, I'd also like to warn everybody who thought, you know, Marxism was over. Spoiler alert, not. This is literally what Marx predicts in Capital, that capitalism would reach a point where it ceased effectively to be productive, that it would just be about structuralised leeching. Speaking of structuralised leeching uh, and and inequities in our system, of course, this week was unequal pay day as well and women in the workforce and the inequalities that are perpetuated against women in the workforce will be discussed at the Jobs and Skills Summit. But, you know, again, it's just damning, isn't it? And you often say this, you know, Australia has one of the most gender-segregated workforces in the world. In the OECD, we're, we're the worst. We're the most gender-segregated economy in the OECD. And for those people who don't know what that means, it means literally we concentrate certain kinds of industries and certain kinds of pay rates around the different genders. So uh, obviously really high proportion of women working in early childhood education, aged care, disabilities care, uh, the arts, and we know that these are retail hospitality. We know that these are structurally some of the most exploited and lowest paid industries, whereas we highly concentrate men, male workers in plastering and aviation mechanics and, you know, finance and, finance and these kind of, and it's, it's the 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 results could not be more stark. And um, there was a really good example that was used a couple of years ago in early childhood education campaigns that it took exactly the same amount of time and the same amount of class hours as a commitment to qualify as an early childhood educator as it did as a plasterer. I think, and but the pay rates were not comparable. You know, the the heavily male subsidised profession earned. A fortune more than the heavily feminised uh, profession. Well, uh, on average, men are being paid an average of four hundred and seventy-two dollars a week more than women. They, yeah, and and for the same number of hours. That's that's hours adjusted. I mean, the joke of equal pay day. Somebody made this online the other day, and I thought it was quite good. They were like, "It's the annual day for men on Reddit to tell us the gender pay cap doesn't exist. That that's the function of the day." And I mean, it is things that we know about the gender pay gap. Sorry, it is real. Sorry, sorry everyone. You can't just pretend it's an industry thing. Oh, well, you know, like, you know, these are just harder jobs, you know, kind of thing. Anybody who's wrangled a two-year-old in an early childhood education environment, let me tell you, is doing about as hard a job as it gets. And one, if anything goes wrong, the sea of trouble that follows you and a mistake in that particular workforce is an issue. But we know the gender pay gap hits when people enter the workforce because people say, oh, well, women go off to have children and blah, blah, blah. But the gender pay gap begins when workers are 15 to 19 years old when they don't have children. So, I mean, and there are so many different structural influences on this particular situation. Well, the union movement put out a paper yesterday that talked about how, and this is incredible, you know, we talk about, oh, we don't have enough workers and the rest of it, that that actually there are 839,000 women in Australia who would be able to go to work if they were facilitated to go to work. And and the, the report lays out how to do that, right? It talk not only does it talk about how to do that, it talks about the benefits of that. So if the 839,000 women who are in Australia right now were facilitated to go into work uh, and they just halved the, the pay gap, just halved it, didn't even close it all the way. So all you misogynists out there, they're not even talking about getting rid of the whole pay gap, just halving it. That's an extra $111 billion in the Australian national income, $111 billion. And again, like the, I'll post a link to the report on our social media because it's a really good report. It's called uh, it's called the Delivering Respect for Women at Work report. It's it's the latest in that ACTU series we've been talking about each week. But the fourteen recommendations are amazing. I just want to touch on four very quickly because I know we're running out of time and we still have a couple of things to talk about. They talk about increasing paid parental leave from eighteen to twenty six weeks and mapping out a path to lifting it to fifty two weeks by twenty thirty. We have friends in Norway who came to visit us because they both got 52 weeks of uh, paid leave, a huge amount of increased economic activity as a result. Leave should be offered on a shared basis between parents with incentives to drive equal parenting. Superannuation should be paid on all leave. At the moment, women who take unpaid parental leave get double punished 
because they lose out on super. That's unbelievable. Outrageous. Again, having early childhood education free and accessible, uh, bringing that forward, uh, li- you know, lifting that up, creating a national care compact. I mean, these are all good ideas, right? The, the care compact that uh, makes a caring economy jobs, great places to work, lift the pay, improve workloads, make sure there's a career progression. So it's not, oh, well, I'm just stuck here and I've got nowhere to go after this. And again, multi-employer bargaining. I mean, I just, again, to see business groups, some business groups, not all business groups, some business groups say, oh, we can't afford this or we can't do this or, or, you know, it's a cost burden. No, you think that because you're lazy and you're greedy. Exactly. Like they're lazy and they're greedy. Let's stop. Let's just tell it how it is. People like this show because we tell it how it is. They're lazy and they're greedy. And not only are they lazy and greedy. It's like, do the work. You want the capitalist system, buddy, you go out and work for it. Pull yourself up, buy your bootstraps, and be a productive capitalist. I'm sick and tired of this shirking from the capitalist class. I'm sick of it. Do you know what they are? They're capital bludgers. They are capital bludgers. That is exactly what they're. $111 billion. Go out and earn it. $111 billion left on the table because capital bludgers can't be bothered to go, you know what we should do? Make our workplace a bit more family friendly and pay women the same as men, or at least half the pay gap. $111 billion. That's so much money. That's <laughs> more money than we've wasted on submarines that we don't have. And we wasted a lot of money on submarines. I mean, we did. We did. Did we ever get those planes that we paid exorbitant amounts of money know. for? Oh, if, you, if you know whether or not Australia ever received those planes, do send us a letter at the Lockbag PO Box. <laughs> No, but seriously, it is ridiculous. And, you know, so unequal payday has been and gone. The problem exists still. Hopefully, the Jobs and Skills Summit will deal with it a bit. But you know, it's it needs to be fixed. It needs to be fixed. Ben, do we want to talk about the stage three tax cuts? Uh, we'll talk about them very briefly. So Ben and I were asked what we thought of the stage three tax cuts, and like obviously we think taxation should be more fair, and we think generally if a tax policy comes from the Liberal Party, it's probably not good for working people, or dare I even suggest such a thing exists, the average Australian. The fact that the overwhelming benefit of the tax cuts goes to the richest uh, percentage of um uh, of uh, wage earners in the economy, like at quite disproportional levels, like people in the top one yeah. percent um, of of wage earners will get what nine thousand dollars. It's been interesting to and watch. They'll, they'll actually get. They'll actually. Yeah, you're right. They'll get nine thousand dollars. They will get the same combined benefit as the bottom sixty five percent. Yeah, and that's. I mean, that's bad. The issue is, of course, that uh, tax cuts are very – tax cuts are rhetoric that has a certain kind of purchase on a certain kind of electorate. And really, it's been interesting to watch Jackie Lambie, of course, participate in this discussion saying the stage three tax cuts shouldn't go ahead and this would be terrible because I know, Ben, even you forgot that Jackie Lambie did actually vote for them back in 2019 like the Labor Party did, and yet that isn't being mentioned a lot at the moment. No. Because it is about the political messaging and Peter Dutton is absolutely salivating to turn around to the electorate that he lost in the last election, um, you know, the swing voters in mar- in marginal and regional electorates that he needs to ever be Prime Minister and go, Labor is high taxing, Labor got rid of your tax cut. You know, the fact that they don't apply to the vast, that amount yeah. doesn't apply to the vast majority of taxpayers is beside the point. It's about perception and it's about messaging. So do do I think Labor should support them? No. And I wrote very clearly in 2019 that I thought it was a mistake for Labor to support those tax cuts even yeah. then. But we are where we are and we're in a political reality where Dutton doesn't have a lot of ammunition in the arsenal to really fire at the voters he needs to win and Labor are high taxing and they're going to take this money away from you doesn't have to be true for people to believe it. Let's remember, of course, that the Liberals are the party of the fabulous death tax accusation. 
And it's tricky territory because people who voted for Labor in this election, the kind of demographics that they're from are people who are really susceptible to taxation and to taxation messaging. So, look, I understand why Labor don't want to walk away from them. That being said, Laura Tingle made a really interesting point on the 730 report, which, again, can I just repeat, I am loving because it is intelligent news for, yeah. you know, for an Australian electric, which is, by the way, quite intelligent. Um she was saying that Labor have been very guarded in their language around talking about the tax cuts and she's not convinced that these cuts are necessarily going to go through. They're not on the schedule to go through until when, Ben? 24-25, so 1st of July 2024. So Labor have time to create a message frame by which different taxation arrangements could possibly be mooted, something that might be even more popular. Um I'm confident that the new Labor government, which is enjoying quite a lot of popularity and doing things that people like and has a lot of, you know, pressing examples to adjust their taxation recipe, mm. we do need to, you know, clean up the environment, maybe buy some anti-fire like tankers to fly over virus that might burn down. You know, there are things that education and healthcare mm-hmm. to spend money on, but I think it's a much more there's a there's an element of political messaging that goes in this. I don't say that you know, like I forgive um, any kind of, you know, taxation bounty shown to the capitalist class and those who are profiteering from the current system of relations, I think from each according to their ability to each according to their needs <laughs> makes me pretty old school. But I do understand why we are where we are and yeah. I don't want to give Dutton anything. No, I don't want to give Dutton anything either. And he's come out very hard and really tried to make his – frame about holding labour to account on tax. He's tried to do it on power prices as well. That's fallen a bit flat. Uh, and look, you know, I, I support the, the same position you support, that people on $200,000 a year don't need a $9,000 tax cut. And in fact, but, people are going on Twitter and saying that that they are in that bracket and they would prefer not yeah. to get the tax cut. They would rather have a functional local public hospital and quality local public schools than take the money. But let's build up that campaign. Let's build, let's do that work to make sure that Dutton doesn't get a free kick at the next election. Because if we don't, then all we're going to have is a repeat of the 2019 death tax, high taxing, labour taxes you. The bill you can't afford. All that stuff. Uh, Which swing voters do get really nervy about. They, they do. do. And what we know is that right now, tomorrow, possibly by the time you listen to this episode, there is a jobs and skills summit. There is an opportunity here to do some real heavy lifting economic reform that will change the conversation and change the dynamic in workplaces so that there is more scope to have conversations around tax, to to, to build the campaign. So I saw somebody write, somebody was criticising Labor on this issue and, and I, I get the inclination to do that. I, I do. did write a column about it in The Guardian at the time. I know. And people, and people have a right to be critical and if their pet issue hasn't been resolved straight away, I understand. But somebody wrote, mate, they, they've only been in power for 100 days. They don't have a magic wand. And that's absolutely true. We've had a decade of conservative rule. We've had 100 days of labour. A lot's been done. There's still a huge amount to do. The next two days, huge steps can be taken. Once those steps are taken, we can take some more. But there's no point having our eyes beyond the horizon for something that doesn't become law for at least another 18 months. And do you know what you can do if you're opposed to those tax cuts like we are? Guess who else is opposed to those tax cuts? The Australian Council of Trade Unions. So if you actually want to put your muscle behind a campaign for a different taxation recipe, do you know what you should do, Ben? Join your union. Oh, my God, you should totally join your union and lend your numbers to that institutional movement. Now, what we're going to do today, because we're going to run out of time, we're going to actually send the good news story to our Buy Me A Coffee listeners who support the show. I know normally we would have a good news story to end, but we've already run so far over time. It's about polystyrene and you'll love it. You will absolutely love it. 
you can go to uh, www.buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday. I will post it up there. It will be up and available and free for everyone to access. I don't know if you've noticed, guys, but we're really going to have to feed this dog. And if we don't do that, he's going to feed on us. (laughs) Of course, our Buy Me A Coffee supporters will have it uh, emailed to them directly, but it will be posted on our supporter page. Van... We've got we've got to we've got to just congratulate and thank our supporters because again they continue to grow every every single week. Have you got the list in front of you? I do. Are you ready? I'm going to do it as fast as possible. Everybody, get out your time checky things. Let's All go. Right. Our cadre are Karina Baliach, NC Campbell, Leona Gibbons, Someone Fiona, Evergreen v- V's, Giotto, at Jed Carney, Christine Cole, Justin Dando, Tamara James, Bromwin, Punch Drunk Veteran, at Jenny Forster 7, Joe Fleming, Andrew Pascoe, Cassandra Tui, Addison Official, Ian Hampson, no Twitter for me, Hannah Honda, Sam Harriet, Alexandra Sutherland, Matt Bush, no relation, Richard Sands, I'm not on Twitter, Glenn Robbie, Brush Daniels, Collie Phillips, Atley Archer, Linda Carterite, Atley Ann Shingles, Louise Moran, Donna Chapman, I don't have Twitter, my name is Susan Myers, at Kerry Nash 20, Billy 3 McCabe, Karen Will Robinson, Nerissa Simon, at Katagal, Lauren Nash, Matthew Hadley, Naranga Man, John Sharpen, Peter Bath, Aaron Rollins, Louise Watson, Red, White and Blue Lou. And then there are our Extend the Reach supporters. I got on such a roll. Stuart Munn at Vic M. Bit. Adrian Valente, Maritza at Carriedale 68, Frank Nihus, Erica Pizzuti, Claire, Joe Lapino, Steph, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry Arthur, Pauline Bate, uh, Kathy Birchie, Kirsten Black, Melanie Dinning, Jody A. Not on Twitter, Karen, Penelope Judge, Jane Holloway, Spirit of Anger and Hope, Vicky Hanna, at Not Love Your Work, at Didhams, Sharon Kelly, Beck and Lola. Oh, and I met Beck and Lola up in uh, Byron Bay and it was awesome. Um, Richard Graver, Someone, Vita W, Tanya George, Nandita Hannam, Maura Louise Hawker, Megan Weckett, Graham Oxley, Beck Cody, Tracy. Lucas, Sandy Heinen at Galvest, Greg Martin, trainer, Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter, Sarah, Elian and Andrew, Ivis Spillett, Andrew Bryan, Peter O.C., Linda, Sam Hadid, Kip Patterson, Lizette Twizzle, Bunker Basher, Katie Ward, the real Neville Longbody, Sandy Baumgart, not Sandy B, Renee McGee and Vic M. Bitt. They are Ooh. our cadre who chip in 20 bucks a month and our extended reach supporters who chip in $10 a month. And, of course, we want to give a huge shout-out and congratulations and thank you to all of our Buck a Week supporters as well. We outrated the absolutely vile neo-fascist Steve Bannon's War Room podcast, which is a big deal because we feel a lot better about our own lives thinking we are more popular than a fascist. And you should feel really good about that too because it meant that we – did crack the top 30 news podcasts on Apple Podcasts and the top three politics podcasts. You'll see uh, some material around that. Uh, it's been fantastic. Now, Ben and I also have some really great news about phase two of the weekend, Week on Wednesday uh, Global Domination Program that we, I think, are letting everybody know on Friday. On Friday, that's right. Friday, there'll be a big announcement and a big opportunity for listeners of the show. Uh, so do tune in for that on all of our social media channels you can like share comment please do leave reviews if you're listening on apple in particular it helps other people find the podcast don't forget to tune into on the job the official australian unions podcast with francis leach fantastic work that he does we love him as well as socially democratic you can catch van uh, every couple of weeks on ABC statewide as well on the radio of course van's got an article that had came out Yesterday in the Guardian. No, today. Today in the it's Guardian. It's all been a bit of a blur. It's such, been a big day. Such a blur. Uh, and of course, you can catch us for the weekend wrap every Sunday. And I just want to say a huge thank you to all of the people who've been tuning into the weekend wrap. You have really lifted my spirits on that. The numbers there are really great. Uh, and it made August of this year our second biggest month ever second only to of course the election when we had such great specials and such great content that's it that's that's a huge episode it is of pretty the week big. on wednesday it's, it's chunky it's chunky it's chunky until next time love you vanny i love you too let's feed the dog bye bye say goodbye germ